This is the fifth message in our study in Isaiah. And I don't know, if you've been here more than once, you know that these early chapters, and by early I mean the first 39, um, are kind of grim. I mean, they're full of condemnation and judgment and how God judges his people. And then he goes on and mentions people groups and cities and nations who are under judgment. And honestly, I wonder how that's affecting you. I wonder how you feel about it. Do you dread the thought of another message about how God judges his people? Or is it, um, is it a cautionary tale for you? I mean, for me, it's heavy. It is grim. And seeing what happened to 8th century Judah makes me think of 21st century America. On Thursdays, some of us informally gather and have fish tacos for lunch. It's all Tim's fault. He brought this up. And uh, it's a changing cast of characters, but, and I mean characters when I say I literally. Um, but um, this past Thursday, I, I try to go when I can, and um, we started talking about corruption in government. And we started at the local level, somebody who's been in Chula Vista for many years, uh, commented upon the change of local government and how corrupt and messed up it is. And then we, we easily transitioned to the state of California. <laughs> and there's a lot to talk about. And then we thought about our national political scene and how things are messed up. And I mean, we just shook our heads. And then, I, it might have been me who brought up this horrific story, this seven-year-old boy in Texas whose mother has just won from a jury the right to transition this poor kid from a boy to a girl, so she says. And he's seven. And dad had tried, they're uh, divorced, and dad had tried to intervene and say, he's a little boy and he wants to be a boy. So with that, all that swirling around in my brain after lunch, I came back to the office and I thought I'd just catch up on the news and I, I would um, check my favorite news blog. So I, I was looking at some websites and I was reminded of another story, I bet caught your eye, of a congresswoman freshman congresswoman who, whose life and scandal, her immorality, even with uh, staff, people who work for her, has been splashed all over um, the internet and all over um, print media. And there was yet another story about her. Can you guess what state she's from? I bet you can. From uh, She's representing, and I say this with all irony, um, the, the great state of California, one of our districts, and uh, I just shook my head and I thought, what God has to say about Judah, he's really saying about America. So I've had that kind of uh, thought process when I've been studying and trying to share with you. Also, I have been reminded of the corruption, not just in 21st century America, but in my own heart. And I realize I'm no better than any of the folks that are mentioned or the sins that are uh, highlighted in Isaiah's condemning words. I'm no better than those folks. And but for the cliche, but for the grace of God. But it's absolutely true. If, if it weren't Christ, I'd be headed for the judgment and wrath of God for my own sins. 
And so it makes me, in a curious kind of way, just so grateful to Christ. Um, and he will uh, meet him prophetically uh, in this book, and he's hinted about, but by the time we hit chapter 52 and 53, there he is, 800 years or 700 and plus years before Bethlehem. So that's my introduction to chapter 5. Uh, that's my way of saying, here's what I'm kind of, how I'm processing this and how I'm, I'm looking at our country and I'm looking at my own heart. And maybe that's a way for us to proceed. Now, chapter five is a long chapter. And as I've told you before, my intent is not to cover every single verse like I've done and like I prefer to do but just really to maybe flower the highlights and get the major themes. Otherwise, Jesus would come and get us, or we would be, you know, too old to look at our Bibles. Um, those of you who do have Bibles, um, your tablets are always good, though, right? Um, sorry? Uh, yeah, yeah. There he goes again with the tablet thing. <laughs> eh, one more time. I thought he was over that. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah. David, is that your creation it's you know I don't get no respect no no respect at all what if I hadn't had a tablet joke you'd just save it until I did okay people I'm trying to be serious here all right back to the word of God um, in my best church lady voice um, I want to sort of overview chapter 5 and give you a way of scoping this out because we won't hit every verse but let me just point out I think there are three things that you could remember that would give you um, the overview of chapter 5 and it might be helpful to know that the sermon title I've chosen is is called sour grapes in the worthless vineyard and I hope you'll understand the sour grape part of that by the time we're done. And then my subtitle is basically the major, simple, basic story, theme of this entire thing. And by the way, if, you, if you're new, there are outlines in, in the bulletin if you want to use them. So rejecting God leads to ruin. That is exactly what Isaiah ends up saying in chapter 5. So let me give you an overview. The first seven verses are a parable. They're a song about a vineyard. And we don't expect that in a book of judgment. It's in verse. It is definitely a song. And then another thing that you should watch out for is the word woe. It is used six times in this long chapter. And then you might also notice the word therefore. And it is used in response uh, to the woes about four times. And that's the way we'll try to uh, check this out. So I want to go back now to the vineyard. Rafi read this text, and I'd like to return to that, and we'll read every verse here. So uh, chapter 5, verse 1 says, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, he cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines, and built a watchtower. They built watchtowers for uh, harvest time so people wouldn't come in and rip off the harvest. 
And so uh, it's kind of like having a construction site where you've got a, a little trailer and the security is on 24 hours a day. Anyway, so my beloved did all these things, built a watchtower in the midst of it, hewed out a wine vat, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now notice in verse 3, there's a shift of speakers. Now, Isaiah has been talking, and he says, my beloved, right? And I think, as a side note, I think it's a lovely thing that Isaiah the prophet calls Almighty God his beloved. And that's the way we ought to look at it. And when I often say, the one we love the most, Jesus, that's what we're saying. He's our beloved. There's no one that can compare to him. So Isaiah, I, I don't think this is a formality or a literary device. I believe he's actually saying, my beloved is Almighty God. Well, in verse 3, Isaiah stops talking, and the beloved's voice is the one we hear. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me. So that's, it's not Isaiah. Isaiah doesn't have a vineyard. He's singing a song about the beloved, and now it's the beloved talking. Judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I've not done in it when I looked for it to yield grapes? Why did it yield wild grapes? Wild grapes could be translated sour grapes or even stinking grapes. We don't need no stinking grapes, see? So the, it, it's grapes that are absolutely no value to anybody. They're not firm and big and juicy. You can't make wine out of them. You can't eat them. They're as good as not having grapes at all. That's the harvest. Sour grapes. Verse 5 God's frustration comes out and he says, here's what I'm going to do about this situation. Now I'll tell you what I'll do to my vineyard. I'll remove its hedge. It shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall. It'll be trampled down. I'll make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. If you thought to this point, well, I think that is Isaiah. Isaiah does not command the rain, okay? It has to be God who's speaking. And then at verse 7, we know for sure, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, and he, now we realize this, this parable, this song, is not about vineyards. It's not about actually fruit. It's about the house of Israel, the men of Judah, or his pleasant planting. And the harvest he looked for, the end of verse 7 says, he looked for justice. That's the fruit he was hoping for. That's the fruit he was expecting, and he had every right to expect it. But behold, bloodshed. He was looking for righteousness. That's the fruit that Almighty God wants from his people. But instead, an outcry, meaning this is a travesty. Look at what's happened to my vineyard. So we're talking about, I, I think Isaiah probably was using this literary device to sneak up on his audience. You know, if it's unremitting judgment and condemnation, um, maybe people tune that out. But um, we, we're listening because it's a song. We think, oh, that's interesting, a song and a poem. What's that about? It's a love song. Oh, yeah, it's about Israel. <laughs> well, from there, I want to point out the woes. Now, a woe is a specific condemnation of a particular sin. It's like you say, whoa, you're not getting out of that. Whoa, that's where judgment is going to fall. Whoa. So he gives six of these, and they're very specific. And what I've tried to do 
is to give you a title that describes the sin. In most cases, there's a couple of things that are happening. And so I've had to kind of combine some. Maybe you'd think of a better title, but at least you'll have an idea of what I was going for. The first woe is in verse 8. And I've titled this Greedy Land Grabbing. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath. A, a unit of measure, very insignificant for that much land. Homer, a seed shall yield but an ephah. Nothing's working right uh, on the harvest side of things. It's clear in Scripture that God is not anti-wealth, and he's not particularly pro-wealth either. God uses wealthy people throughout the Bible. The scripture is discriminating, though, and asks the question, where did the wealth come from? How did you achieve it? Did you step on other people? Did you oppress people and take things away from them that you shouldn't have to acquire your wealth? What is your wealth to you? Is it an idol? Does it replace God as first in your life? Those are the sorts of things that God looks at when we're talking about wealth. And in this case, these wealthy landowners are shoving rightful owners aside to acquire more and more and more. In Israel at this time, they had a different view of real estate than you and I do. When Joshua brought the wandering people of Israel from their wilderness wandering into the promised land, they allocated real estate to all of the tribes, right? And then they were further divided for families. These were meant under God's economy to be God's uh, gift and a permanent possession to those people. And so every 50 years was the year of Jubilee in which the rightful owners would reacquire their property. And we don't, I mean, it's weird for us to think about, but that's what's going on in under this woe, people are taking property that's not theirs and shoving aside poorer and weaker ones, and it's motivated by greed. It's a greed thing, and he's condemning it. Woe to those people! A second woe is verse 11. I'm calling it drunken ignorance, which, if you know anything about drunkenness or ignorance, you know they often go together. Um, so he says, verse 11, Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, wine at their feasts. But, here's the second part of their sin, they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. This is a partying lifestyle. This is alcohol at its worst. Uh, this is people who live for the buzz, whose whole life is built around then the weekend comes and we get to party. Um, and they love gathering together, having banquets, because there's plenty of flowing alcohol. And along with this sin is the other one that it dulls their senses to God himself. And they really do not know him. They don't regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. I think that there has been an incredible softening 
um, within the, quote, Christian culture over the last 25 years maybe or so, where um, the use of alcohol has become not a big deal to people. And uh, I know that I may be a, a lone voice in the wilderness to say, hey, we ought to really watch this, people. Uh, we're commanded. It's not a suggestion or, hey, maybe you should think about this. We're commanded not to get drunk. Um, Ephesians 5.18 says, don't get drunk. And he explains why. It's debauchery. It's dissipation. I uh, continually am amazed how... how um, this is a point of contention, like, oh, I, I don't know that I agree with that. Dude, it's the word of God. Um, and so along with it has come the ignorance of disregarding, because if you're in a, an alcoholic haze, you're really not paying attention to the Holy Spirit's work, which is the point in Ephesians 5.18 and following. Don't be drunk with wine. That's dissipation, debauchery, but be filled, be continually filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's an issue of control. And um, anyway, we're going to meet drunkenness again in this text. Uh, he devotes two woes to the abuse of alcohol. I wonder why that is. Um, don't, don't go away thinking, oh, Jim's always talking about alcohol. What's wrong with him? Hey, it's the word of God. I didn't make this up. I didn't choose the proportion 30% of the time to talk, or 33%, I guess. So what follows this particular woe are a couple of therefores. So you see a therefore in verse 13 and one in verse 14. Let me comment without a lot of detail. Verse 13 says, therefore, in light of what he's just been talking about, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. So we've just said this drunken ignorance thing will now He's saying, my people are going to be exiled. They'll be uh, captured and taken into captivity. And it's because they don't know me. You remember in how uh, the Lord Jesus uh, said in the last days, there'll be people come to me and say, hey, Lord, we did all these great things for you. And he'll say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. So it's a case of they didn't know him. They were called by his name, they were supposed to be his people, but they didn't know him and he did not know them. And so thus the wrath of God has fallen. Verse 14 is the second of the therefores. And I'll just read the first part of verse 14. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down. So uh, he mentions then the revelers and he who exalts in her. He's just been talking about these people who live to pour alcohol down their gullet. You know, that's their whole thing. And now he says, you know, what's really going to be hungry one day is Sheol. The mouth of Sheol is going to be open wide. And all you people who ignored me and pursued that, you're going to find yourself being swallowed up. Sheol is a word that is used in, the, it, it's not the same as hell. It's used in the Old Testament as the domain of the dead. The Old Testament did not have a full-blown theology of life after death. Um, it's what we call progressive revelation. Um, the truth is there. It's not explained as fully as it will be as the light of the gospel begins to shine and more and more truth emerges so we know more about the afterlife 
than Isaiah did at this point or that God revealed to him. But nonetheless, it was a fate that they didn't particularly look forward to. So there's two therefores for you. We return to the woes in verse 18. Now this is number three. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. I'm calling this arrogant defiance of God. And who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. So here he pictures his people as beasts of burden, dragging along with them a cart, a heavy load, and its sin. And wherever they go, they're dragging this along with them. They don't probably realize it. They think they're free. And at the same time that they are so enslaved to their own sins, and it's so obvious, they are mocking Almighty God by saying, hey, where's, let him show up and tell us what's going on. You know, We're free people dragging their sin along. It's, it's a curious combination, but you see it uh, oftentimes in Jesus' ministry. Do you remember how the Pharisees came to him? And they said, well, why don't you show us? You know, what sign are you going to show us so that we can know you claim to be the Messiah? Well, what's and this after, you know, months and years of Jesus demonstrating that he is the Messiah through signs and wonders and the teaching that he does. Um, it's the it's the same kind of mockery as well as a deadness from the neck up that uh, that these folks had in their day as well. Arrogant defiance of God. Um, number four, I, I think you'll resonate with this one in our culture more than maybe any of the others. Verse 20, upside down morality. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We live in a culture that does this exact thing. Um, if you point out, well, I don't think that's right, you become a hater, and you become the uh, instigator of uh, bigotry and homophobia or whatever the particular sin might be. Um, we live in a culture where um, we call men women and women men, and then if you try to figure that out, then they say there's no gender whatever, you know, it's fluid. You can be anything you want. You can identify with whichever you want to be and, and play sports and rack up all the records. Sorry, ladies, uh, women's athletics has gone away. You know, it's, it's no longer a thing. Um, if you've got daughters in athletics, I don't know what to tell you, but probably competition is, is going to be a, a very frustrating uh, thing. Um, an example in Jesus' own ministry was when... Uh, they attributed his miracle work to Satan. Remember? Oh, yeah, he does signs and wonders. Yeah, yeah, he's, there's healings and stuff like that, but it's all because of Satan. Isn't that the ultimate evil? Can you imagine anything worse than to say of our loving Savior that what he did in restoring people and tenderly caring for them and bringing them out of the depths of their sin was a work of Satan? But that moral bankruptcy, that complete upside-down mentality was present in 
his day as well. And all I can say is, whoa. Whoa. Then in uh, the next verse is the fifth of these woes, and I've decided to call that ignorant conceit. <laughs> I almost used the picture of a former president, and I've got a great shot of his posing like that, and then I thought, ah, I don't want to intentionally offend people. You know what I mean? So there's, there's somebody who probably... So anyway, you don't know this guy unless it's you. There's a few of you that look like. No, I don't, I don't think it's you. So verse 21 says, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. I bet everybody here knows somebody who's wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Um, and they walk into a room and expect everybody to kind of click their heels and say, Oh, what wonderful things have you got for us today? Um, we sometimes, I guess, we we just write them off as jerks, you know, the, the person who's wise in their own eyes. But it's far more serious than that. It's a desperate moral failure on their parts that um, that incurs the wrath of God. You know, the book of Proverbs. I jotted down. Do you see a man who's wise in his own eyes? There's more hope for a fool than for him. That's Proverbs 26, 12. So if it's, it's ignorance, this time not with drunkenness, although you could throw that in, but with conceit, assuming that you're wise when you're, you know, dumber than opposed, really. So that incurs God's woe. The last one is also involves uh, drunkenness. Verse 22, and following woe, number six, woe to those who are heroes of drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink. We, we call this drunken corruption, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Heroes at drinking. You ever known anybody who was a hero at drinking? That was their big claim to fame. When I was in high school, I, used to, I was in a class, and this will date me, I suppose, not that you needed uh, a reminder of my, my uh, longevity or anything, but... I was in a typing class with a guy named Billy. Billy and I were sort of like friends, although we didn't hang out and we didn't do anything together, but he, we were very friendly, and he always used to, on Monday, we'd show up, and we sat next to one another, and he would always tell me how he had gone drinking for the weekend and how many beers he'd pounded back, and he always invited me. It was like his badge of honor. He was a terrible student. He's a pretty good athlete, but he was a horrible student. <laughs> he couldn't type worth anything. And yet he could drink beer. I mean, he was a champion. And then when I got to college, I was pretty naive. I, I thought, yeah, this is pledge week. Maybe I'll check out these different fraternities. Some of you may have been in a fraternity. I'm not knocking you. God bless you. you I'm sure you were a witness there. But what I figured out was there were just two things that the fraternities were great at, and one of them was <laughs> drinking. And I thought, geez, I, maybe that's not for me. Anyhow, you'd think people would grow up. I mean, it's sad enough, and if it was your kid in high school, if Billy was your, your child, you would have probably been horrified at his tales of drunken bliss through the weekend. And if it was your uh, son or daughter that you were sending to the university and their main uh, 
activity, their, their thing that they were expert at was getting plastered. I mean, you probably would have thought otherwise about that. But, hey, they're only 20. They're only 18 or 17. It's not supposed to be drinking anyway. Um, but what if they're 50 or 60? I mean, what a, I mean, heroes of drinking, valiant men in mixing strong drink. That's a great reputation right there. You know, I, I may have told you this story. That's, I'm prefacing all my stories now with that because I probably have told it. So, but, you know, the Beckmans are leaving, so you won't, uh, uh, there'll be somebody new who won't have heard of them all, see? So this member of my church years and years ago um, had a problem with alcohol, and I began to hear reports that he was going to church functions, barbecues, and let's watch the Super Bowl and whatnot in the homes of our families. And he, uh, there was alcohol present, and he was just getting bombed out of his mind. And he was an ugly drunk. I mean, he was not a pleasant uh, person. Well, he wasn't that pleasant anyway, to be honest with you. But he was really not pleasant. I heard I was never at these parties. I don't know why. Why did they not invite me? I don't know. I don't know. Um, but in any case, I called him on it. I got enough reports on this. I called him and, and talked to him. So we had this conversation. And I said, um, this is not the behavior of a Christian man. You're not supposed to do that. And, of course, he was defensive and turned it right back on me. He said, there's a lot of people in that church that drink. Well, he didn't have that kind of accent, but I think it makes the story funnier to say it that way. Um, so I, I said, really? And, and he said, yeah, some of your elders, they drink. And you think that what I did at that point was to say, well, what are their names? Which ones were they? But I didn't because I knew them and I knew him. And I said, you know, there's a big difference going on here. They're not drunk. They're not breaking the commandment to not get drunk, and you are, repeatedly, all the time. And he said, and I quote, I never thought of that. He'd been in church many, many years. He never thought of that? Anyway, he didn't stick around, honestly. I was trying to be a loving friend to him. Um, so the, the posture of these folks in verse 22 is that they were heroes at drinking and valiant at uh, booze. But the second part of their sin is in verse 23, where they, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. So this tells me that these folks are, this is not private drinking like the guy I just described who went to parties and got plastered and was ugly about it. This is someone who has probably a public job, is probably in government. And in their drinking problem, they don't consider it a problem, they consider it kind of their life's work, <laughs> they, um, they are subject to bribery and they find it easy to oppress other people. Now, when I came back to my office on Thursday, I was telling you about the congresswoman from California whose scandal is is being uh, spread abroad through leaked pictures. But what I read on Thursday 
was that some of the text messages and emails that have come out between her and her staff and her ex-husband and various other people who were intimately, and I mean intimately, in her life, were all worried about her drunkenness, how she was drinking to excess. And they, her staff people, were worried about her, that she got to tone it down. She sits as a vice chairperson of a very sensitive committee in the Congress. I mean, she's absolutely the worst kind of person to have in a sensitive place where she's subject to bribery. People have pictures of her, and now the whole world does, that would put her in a position where they could uh, leverage their own point of view or uh, represent a foreign government in, in uh, a traitorous way. That's what he's talking about, woe number six. Okay, so the rest of the chapter is there for us. There's two of them. I'll comment briefly on them. The first, actually the third, therefore, is in verse 24. Therefore, in light of everything that's been said, all these woes, therefore is the tongue of the fire of fire devours the stubble as dry grass sinks down in the flame. So their root will be as rottenness and their blossoms go up like dust for they've rejected. Do you see where it all begins? They have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. That's the root of all of this. This, therefore, is in a curious kind of way very comforting to me. I don't know about you, but it's easy for me to get cynical about what happens in public corruption. Case in point is a woman named Lois Lerner. Um, it's public record. I'm not uh, besmirching her dubious honor in any way. And she was in charge of the IRS. And it's very public that she uh, deliberately targeted Christian uh, groups and held up their nonprofit status and did all kinds of mischief simply because evidently she hates Christians and conservatives in general. And so what happened to Lois when all this came out? Well, she retired with a fat pension. That's what happened. And so every month or two I hear stuff like, Oh, yeah, so-and-so's report's going to come out, and then the hammer will fall. And we're going to see indictments. There's sealed indictments. There's like thousands of them. Really? Are they on that bridge you were trying to sell me? Is that where they are? I'm very cynical about anybody ever coming to justice who has done incredible malfeasance in a public role. And so I may be overly cynical. I think I probably am. But I read this verse, and I say, okay, Justice may not come in, in the arena in which the corruption exists, but Almighty God will not let this go. And it will fall one day, not according to my timetable, but certainly according to his. And I feel Jesus is going to make things right one day. I don't know exactly how that will all work out, but I know he will. And so I read verse 24, and I even though it's, it's stark and tongues of fire and devouring dry grass and all that stuff, I think, okay, judgment will fall one day. Verse 25 um, is the last of the therefores, the fourth one. It says, therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountain, mountains quaked and their corpses were its refuge in the midst of the streets for all this, his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Verse 26, he'll raise a signal for nations far away 
and whistle for them from the ends of the earth, and behold, quickly, speedily they come. This shows you the myriad of ways that God's judgment may fall. And in some cases, evidently in this case, uh, natural disaster was one of the ways. He mentions an earthquake. And then in verses 25 and 26, he, or rather verse 26, yeah, verse 26, he mentions the invasion of foreign powers. Throughout the writing of Isaiah, his, his ministry, prophetic ministry, spanned many decades. There was the looming threat of Assyria, and Assyria was always ready to overrun any weaker country. And indeed, by 722 B.C., the nation of Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, the ten tribes that had broken off after, after Solomon's death. And they conquered the nation, and they carried the people away, and the northern tribe was no more, and never was again. And actually, Assyria tried to invade, did invade Israel, but God intervened and stopped them from destroying Judah. But... 136, almost 140 years after the northern kingdom fell, Babylonia, the, the Babylon conquered Judah and carried them into captivity. They were an instrument of God's judgment. That's what he's saying. Our God can use evil things. And then he turns right around and punishes the evil that he, that he was able to use. It's, I mean, take it or leave it. This is our God, and this is what he does. Um, well, isn't that a happy note to end on, you know? So I'm not going to end there. I want to share with you some takeaways. And like I've said before, the takeaways that I'm giving you are not like, oh, this is the central truth of this text. No, I think the central truth of the text is rejecting God leads to ruin. I think that's it. But the takeaways are what has hit me personally. So I guess maybe how God has convicted me or what he said to me uh, by way of application is what I'm sharing with you. And maybe you'll find applications other than these, and I, I hope you will, but I'll share mine. Number one is the truth that spiritual fruit, spiritual life produces spiritual fruit. And that's the whole point of all this vineyard stuff. The metaphor of vineyard and fruit and harvest is used throughout the Bible to describe what's supposed to happen to God's people and how fruit is the inevitable result of healthy life in Christ. And um, Jesus himself used a parable of a vineyard at, at one point for a little different purpose, but it was our Lord who said, I am the vine and you are the branches. And he who abides in me and I in him will produce much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. I kind of butchered that, but that's John 15, 5. And so um, our connection to our God, people can say I'm a Christian all day long, and in our culture we tend to focus on the decision end of things. Oh, he made a decision. I, I have a friend who insists that her brother became a Christian because he prayed a prayer like 40 years ago. The guy is an absolute reprobate. I mean, he... He doesn't darken the door of the church. He doesn't live for Christ. He doesn't love the word of God. If he says Jesus, it's a cuss word. I mean, this guy is there. After 40 years, he'd expect a little fruit, you know. But she clings to the idea that he prayed a prayer when he was a kid. Well, look, the Bible says decisions are great. We should make a lot of them. 
I believe that. But really, the evidence is fruit. And if there is spiritual life, it will, over time, fruit doesn't come instantaneously, obviously. It takes a while to emerge and ripen. Um, and that's why the fruit of the Spirit are character qualities. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These things cannot be produced in the self-life that we have as sinners, as dead in our trespasses and sins. It comes because the Holy Spirit has done a work in us, and Jesus is now our Lord and King. So that's an important truth, I think, that we see over and over again in Scripture, and certainly we see it here. And so it, it gives us a, a little perspective um, on spiritual growth, and perhaps it allows us to be patient with people, because you plant a lime tree in your backyard, you're probably not going to get limes for a while. Now, I've killed several lime trees, so I know this to be true. But if it's living, it will inevitably produce fruit. Now, the corollary is my second takeaway. And it's, I worded it in kind of a long way. But moral corruption, public and private, is the sour grapes. Corruption is the sour grapes of rejecting God and his word. God might expect the fruit of the Spirit. But sour grapes means all you got is unusable grapes. All you got is, is stinking grapes. Um, and so what this tells me is that as much legislation as we might pass and how we must uh, be good citizens and vote our conscience and um, stand up for the unborn, and stand up for traditional marriage and try to somehow be faithful about the insanity that is consuming our culture now, um, nothing stops this really other than conversion, a work of God. And we can't legislate that. Moral majority couldn't do it back in the 80s. Everybody, some people in those days thought, oh, we have the Messiah now. Ronald Reagan was elected in landslides twice. Well. You know, look how that turned out. Um, look where we are. So uh, moral corruption comes from rejecting God's word, from rejecting him. And it's not going to get better on its own. And it won't even get better if we have a new Congress um, or a new president or whatever. Which leads me to my third, third takeaway. It seems obvious. We need to pray for our country. I... We used to cite Second Chronicles 7.14 a lot more than we do now. And I think people were, I, I think people in the 80s and 90s that were praying and singing Second Chronicles 7.14 a lot were expecting a different outcome. It's still a great promise. Let me read it to you. You can probably quote it. Some of you can. If my people who are called by not my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. It's probably not. Um, the answer to that prayer is probably not a moral majority or whatever manifestation of, um, of a conservative upswing or however you wanted to say it uh, that we have seen since. It, it is church planting. It is the gospel penetrating individual homes. It's people getting saved. 
and their lives turning around. We need to pray for our country on that level. And then the last thing I have to say, the best thing I have to say all morning is this, Jesus is our only hope. And that's not like, oh, Jesus is our only hope. It's like Jesus is our only hope because one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. And that will happen. He wins everything. And there will be this mighty chorus in the heavenlies. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. That's where we're headed. So you read Isaiah, you get depressed. Think about that. Think about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us to be good citizens in a corrupt world. We belong to this world in one way, but this world is not our home. We're just a passing through. And so may we balance things to be good neighbors and good citizens. And yet, Lord, may be faithful witnesses to our Lord and King, the one who really rules, and one day will set things right. And so may this week be a week uh, not ever of despair, but of great glorious hope in Christ. And I pray that that would be the case for each one of us here in Jesus' name. Amen.